Please do take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 50. We are in our third of four servant songs of the Messiah. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we often walk in darkness and need the light of your word. Indeed, Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so would you be pleased by your Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding and facilitate our application and putting into practice um, your word. Father, may your word that is before us today be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, although we're taking a break from our current series in Mark, our time in God's Word this month is serving as an extended commentary on one verse in Mark. I just realized as I was working on this passage yesterday that we actually haven't left Mark. We're actually just going deeper, deeper into Mark chapter 10 verse 45, which is where we left off a few weeks ago. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is one of the key verses in Mark's gospel because Jesus is, ever since the confession of Jesus as the Christ and the call to discipleship, Jesus has turned toward Jerusalem, turned toward the cross Um, Mark's emphasis has gone from who Jesus is to what Jesus came to do. And Jesus says, I came to serve. And we will see, especially as we get into Isaiah 52 and 53 next week, that he came to die in our place and on our behalf. Well, where did Jesus get his human understanding of what it meant to come as a servant, to do the work of a servant. Well, I believe much of his understanding can be found in the book of Isaiah. I also believe that much of our understanding of Jesus as a servant can be found there as well. Here we are in one of the servant songs of the Messiah. They are poems in Isaiah, and they are poems of the Messiah. Now, when we hear the word Messiah, we need to remember that it's a Hebrew term meaning appointed one. The Old Testament people of God came to anticipate a person anointed by the Spirit who could function once again as king and priest over Israel. And the New Testament uses the word Messiah as well, but instead of that word, they use Christos or Christ. And it belongs only to Jesus because Jesus was a common name means uh, God saves. It's the the version of Joshua. Um, And it's a title that the New Testament affixes only to Jesus. People in the Old Testament were waiting. They were anticipating. That's why we sing hymns like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. These four servant songs of the Messiah... Are, are a progressive revelation of this servant to come, both who he is and what he will come to do. 
We've seen in the first servant song, Isaiah 42, that the servant is presented. We are to behold or we are to see his character and his calling. In the second servant song we saw last week in Isaiah 49, the servant is sent. He's sent to be a light to the Gentiles and we are to listen to him. If you capture the first two songs, it's we are to stop, look, and listen Because here comes the mighty servant of the Lord. Today, in song number three from Isaiah 50, we're going to stop and specifically look at the good news of the servant who is obedient. And finally, next week, we will see the servant is victorious. The suffering servant is victorious on behalf of and in the place of his people. Isaiah is a big book, 66 chapters. It's one of the major prophets. Isaiah ministered in the 8th century B.C., 700 years before the birth of Jesus. As I've been mentioning, Isaiah has twin themes of coming judgment and coming salvation. And you will even see those twin themes in our text today. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have, of course, Isaiah's vision of the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. We also have in Isaiah 6 the commission or the call of Isaiah to go out to a people who are blind and deaf, and as it were, to blind them and to deafen them. And yet, we've already seen that that's impossible because they already are blind and deaf and need eyes opened and ears opened, which is the work of the servant. As I've said before, it's, better, it's worth repeating, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's been referred to as the Romans of the New Testament and also the fifth gospel. Children, the Old Testament is full of promises of which made, which the New Testament shows have been kept. And we will see lots and lots of promises made in Isaiah And the Old New Testament will reveal that God has indeed kept them. And here we see promises concerning the servant. Now who is the servant of the Lord? Who is this servant? Is it Israel as a nation? Is it a believing remnant of nation? Or is it a man? Well, we've seen recently that it can't be Israel. Even though Israel is the official servant of the Lord, we've seen through Isaiah that the The nation is bound, blind, and sinful. It's unfit to serve as a servant. We've seen already the mystery revealed in that in Matthew 12 quotes a substantial portion of Isaiah 42. And in Acts 13 we see part of our text from last week, Isaiah 49 quoted. The New Testament already identifies this servant as none other than Jesus Christ. The mystery has been solved. But indeed, we're going to explore now the depth of this person, of the servant and his work. There's no outline on page six because it went to print before the outline came together. But here's the structure for the exploration of this third servant song of the Messiah. Real simple a window and a mirror. Two points, a window into the obedience of the servant and a mirror reflecting the response of the people. The obedience of the servant 
and the response of the people. First, a mirror through which to look at the obedience of the servant. Now, let's look first at the arrival of the servant on the scene. And I want to begin actually by reading verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord is saying through Isaiah here, I didn't reject you. You rejected me. But I, the Lord, can redeem and deliver. I mean, think about most unbelieving people you know. Think about yourself maybe one day. You've got a complaint against God, don't you? Well, God has not fulfilled his bargain. God has turned his back on me. Some friend of yours says, I'm disappointed in God. God has uh, rejected me. Well, scripture makes it pretty clear. It's not the way it is. God doesn't turn his back on people. They turn their back on him. He doesn't so much reject them as they reject him. And Israel needs to be reminded. God has not rejected them. They have rejected him to be sure. That's why they're in exile. But he can redeem and deliver. This third song that we were about to explore provides answers to those several questions raised in verse 2. Why was there no man? Why was there no one to answer? We'll see the answer unfold as the servant speaks. And we know that the servant is speaking from verses 4 to 9 because what we see in verse 10 when Isaiah comes back and says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Because his servant is now going to speak from verses 4 to 9. And before we go into 4 through 9, as we begin, I want you to notice this close relationship between the Lord God and the servant. Verses 4, 5, 7, and 9 speak of the Lord God. Some translations say the Sovereign Lord. And the translators here are wrestling with the original Hebrew language, how to best express the Hebrew word for Lord, followed by the Hebrew word which we understand as Yahweh, or the covenant-keeping personal name of God. And here, throughout this servant song, you see the Lord, and interestingly, God, in all capital letters. Now, that was somewhat surprising to me because I'm familiar with the Lord in all capital letters. But as I started exploring throughout Isaiah and even in other books of the Old Testament, you will see this, the Lord God, where, where God is all capital letters. Well, 
It is an attempt to capture the almighty, holy, awesome creator, redeemer. It's not just the Lord. It's not just God. It is the Lord God. And I want you to notice his relationship with the servant. Those of you familiar with the uh, book of John may notice that the relationship between the father and the son is present almost on every page, as we will see some examples in a few minutes, of the son's relationship with the father and the father's relationship with the son. Well, here it is this sovereign Lord, the Lord God and his servant. Well, first, as we're looking through this window at the obedience of the servant, we see, first of all, an obedience that is learned. An obedience that is learned, verses 4 and 5. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Obedience, look at the end of verse 5. I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. Israel, the nation. Go back up to verse 1. For your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Not the servant. He is not rebellious. He doesn't turn away. He has no iniquity. He has no transgression unlike Israel. And notice how obedience is fleshed out here. It's a willingness to be taught, a willingness to learn. And what is the servant doing? He's obeying the word of God. The servant is using his ears that have been opened to listen and learn. Those of you that are teachers in any capacity, whether as parents, uh, formal teachers in school, know that teaching is a two-way street. There is the teacher and the student. There is the instruction in the middle. And there is instruction given and instruction received. And all of you children especially, although adults, we are students as well. What a joy it is to our teachers when we are eager to learn. When we are respectful to our teachers and kind to our classmates. What joy that brings the teacher. And here the sovereign Lord has opened the ears of the servant and the servant is listening and he's learning. In Hebrews 10, the author quotes Psalm 40, where we read, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, speaking of Jesus. And here it's God's will that the servant be taught and instructed. In John 6.38, we read this from the lips of Jesus. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Do you see that? He's being obedient by being a student, by listening and learning. And oh yes, he will speak. He's speaking what his father has given him to say. So this right off the bat, you see that it's an obedience that is learned. Last year in August, September, we did a short series called What in the World is the Church? And we looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we learned from that passage that the church is a learning, loving, worshiping, and witnessing community. What did, what did people do? We read in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first mark it was a learning church, a learning community. Here's the servant. His obedience, first of all, is marked by learning. Learning. How about you all? Could one of your identities be that as a student or a learner, a listener? Throughout the New Testament, Jesus calls his people to listen Throughout the Old Testament, God calls his people to listen. To listen to what? His word. His word. Well, not only do we see an obedience that is learned, but also an obedience that is tested. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. The servant continues to speak. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The servant possesses an obedience that is tested. In Deuteronomy 8, we read this, that the Lord did all of these things. He rescued them. He provided for them. He provided manna. Why? That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Here is the servant being tested. And it's from the hand of the Lord God. It's from God's hand and it's for his good. He's going through a refiner's fire. We've been talking in Sunday school about Joseph and a particular incident in Joseph's life where he was tempted to sin, but he said, no, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph was obedient to the Lord. And you know what? It cost him. He suffered he got falsely accused, thrown in jail, abandoned, forgotten about. Uh, no, the Lord was with him and prospered him in everything he 
did. Obedience will bring about suffering. Obedience is easier when there's no opposition. It is difficult. It feels impossible in the face of opposition. We see this suffering progressing from Isaiah 42 4, where we read that the servant will not grow faint or discouraged. Why? Because he's going to be in the midst of difficulty and opposition. We read in 49.4, he cries out, have I labored in vain? It's difficult. And then we see in verses 6 and 7, this suffering, which we will see in technicolor even more coming up in our next song. You read these words of, of his um, disgrace and being stricken and, and, and um, beaten. And we see that, for example, in Matthew 26 at the time approaching Jesus' crucifixion. When he is not only abandoned, as it were, by his uh, friends, he's accused by his um, enemies, and he is beaten physically, emotionally as it were, spiritually. He's opposed. And yet, what does he say? But the Lord God helps me. The Lord God has helped me. Is that the way that the servant can be steadfast? He sets his face like a flint. I was watching a movie of a, a, a battle of the American Revolution a few months ago and one of the officers on the front lines in the midst of, of the assault from the British forces kept saying, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. Jesus, in a way, is holding the line. He's setting his face like a flint. He's purposeful, he's deliberate, he's committed. We see that in Luke where he looks at Jerusalem and he heads deliberately and directly to Jerusalem. He's steadfast, but notice he is also confident. Again, the Lord God helps me. Look at the end of verse 7. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Wait a minute. He's under all kinds of opposition People are attempting to, to take him off of his course. He knows that he will not be put to shame. He is steadfast. He is confident. Now this learned obedience is tested. And through this testing is proven right. Because not only is it an obedience that is learned, an obedience that is tested, is it, it is an obedience that is vindicated. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The adversaries are near the servant, but he makes it clear that the Lord God, his Lord God, is nearer. Once again, the servant acknowledges that his help comes from the Lord. And help here comes in the form of vindication, 
Vindication and help come from above. To be vindicated is to be proved right, to be justified. And when is Jesus justified? When is he proven right? When he is vindicated? Well, Romans, in Romans, Paul makes it clear. It's through his resurrection that death could not lay hold on him forever. He was declared to be the Son of God in power through his resurrection. The servant is not condemned, but rather is declared not guilty. And we heard that in Romans 8 applied to the believer. Because just as Jesus, the servant, is not condemned, so also the person who is united to Christ by faith is not condemned either. Some of you have been there in person. Others of you have just heard it, maybe on the news, that we, the jury, find the defendant, what? Guilty or not guilty? Whereas the, the men, whether it's Jewish leaders or the Roman government, is going to say Jesus is guilty God is the judge and God is the jury who declares his servant not guilty. Not guilty. Look with me at this expression at the end of verse 9. Behold, all of them. Who's the them? Those who would declare Jesus the servant guilty. All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Have you ever gone into your closet to remove that favorite wool sweater, that favorite wool dress, and you pull it out, and lo and behold, what has happened? The moths have eaten the material, and it literally sometimes falls apart right before your very eyes. That's what the servant is saying about all of those who accuse him. In the closet, hung up, as it were, all looks well that they are going to have their way. But when it's taken out and examined, they fall apart. The moth will eat them up. Are any of you all right now dealing with a conscience that is condemning you? Now, it's right and proper to feel guilty when you are guilty. But Christians know what to do with that guilt. The enemy who seeks to kill, steal, kill, and destroy also loads us up with unbearable guilt at times. Who is it that's going to bring any charge? We read in Romans 8. The servant is vindicated. God's people who are united to the servant by faith will be vindicated as well. Notice what we've seen already in this portrait of the servant with a learned obedience, a tested obedience, and a vindicated obedience. This is the portrait of a disciple. To be sure, this servant will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He will die in our place. He will have lived a righteous and perfect life for us. 
but he also is an example. He also is a, a, a model. Did you hear that he's up early in the morning getting his instructions from the Lord? He is listening. He is going through trials with his eyes on the Lord. He is trusting in the Lord to vindicate him. My friends, this portrait of the obedient servant is a portrait of a faithful but struggling disciple like you and like me. Well, not only does this servant song serve as a window through which we, see, we can look to see the servant, but this servant song also serves as a mirror into which we look and see ourselves and we will see ourselves as we consider the response of the people. And so secondly, this servant song is a mirror, the response of the people, verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle the fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Isaiah now shows us that the servant presents the people with a choice. It's a fork in the road. It's the two kinds of people that we read about in Psalm 1. It's the two kinds of people, the wise and the foolish, that we see all throughout the Proverbs. It's Jesus looking at two builders, one wise and one foolish. Verses 10 and 11 present us with a choice of who to follow. Follow the servant or follow yourself. Verse 10 is the person who trusts and obeys the servant. And there's a parallelism. We see that often in Hebrew poetry. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Fearing the Lord and obeying the voice of his servant are one in the same. Remember the voice coming out at the baptism. This is my beloved son. The voice coming out of the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You fear me. You listen to my son. You listen to my servant. All throughout Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders, especially we see in the gospel according to John. If you believed in Moses... You would believe in me. If you, if you loved and trusted and believed my Father, you would believe in me. Look what happens to him who walks in darkness and has no light. What is he called to do? Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. What? There is none here who hasn't in this past year for a time walked in darkness with no light. And what do we do? We trust and we rely. We trust in the name, the faithful name of the Lord, and we rely on our God. 
Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Well, what did the servant say? What did the servant say? I mean, the whole New Testament captures the voice of the servant, Jesus. Well, what did he say? Well, let's boil it down to kind of an essential, what does his voice say? And we see that, of course, in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does the voice of the servant say? Repent and believe. In John 6, we read of an incident where people come to Jesus and say this, and it's a great question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And here's how Jesus answered. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Remember last week, the servant is sent. The son is sent. We've just sung about that. The the Son is sent. Verse 10 is the person who trusts and obeys the servant, the voice of the servant. Whereas verse 11 is the person who trusts and obeys himself. Look with me again at verse 11. Behold, all you, who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. All of you who go to the self-help section of the bookstore and camp out. This is it. You equip yourselves. And Jesus says, the servant says this, fine, you, you, you create a torch, you create your own light, well then live by it. Live by it. But then he goes on to say, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. The same voice, the same person that once says, repent and believe, will one day say, depart, for I never knew you, to those addressed in verse 11. It's a choice. The person who trusts and obeys someone else, the servant, or the person who trusts and obeys himself. Well, here we've seen briefly a window into the obedience of the servant and a mirror reflecting the response of the people. We need to conclude with two words, a word of warning and a word of encouragement. The warning says this, turn away from sin and trust in the servant. Israel didn't turn away from their sin. They turned away from the Lord and trusted in themselves. And the message of this servant is no, turn away from sin and and trust in the servant. His obedience, his faithfulness, And as we will see next week, his substitution. But we've got to end with a word of encouragement. Because at the end of the day, our obedience is anchored not in what we have done or could do, but rather it is anchored in what the servant 
has done. Our encouragement is anchored in not our own obedience, but in the servant's obedience. So let's go back to the very first thing that the servant was taught. The first thing that he learned from the Lord God. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Are any of you all weary right now in this journey? Do any of you all think that you cannot take the next step? Do any of you all think the water is rising and the flames are encroaching and you're just not going to make it? Are you weary? Are you a bruised reed? Are you a faintly burning wick? What does the servant do? He doesn't break that reed. He Heals it. What does he do to the wick? Does he snuff it out? No, he fans it into flame. He learns first and foremost how to sustain with a word him who is weary. This past week I was meeting with several people from the church but also people not in the church. And I met with someone that was not in the church and he was weary. Outside looking good, on the inside, exhausted, weary. What did I have for him? I only had the word of God and I only could point him to Jesus who sustains the weary. That's what the servant has learned and that's what the servant does. To conclude, hear these words from the end of Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus, the servant, as it were, declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord God, sovereign Lord, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, little children, no matter what age, those who are desperately dependent upon the Lord. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to Him. And then what does Jesus say? This, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you hear how this song ends? You shall lie down in torment those who trust in themselves. But the servant is also our shepherd who says this. <clears throat> As we read in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down, not in torment. 
but rather in green pastures. Brothers and sisters, that's our servant. That's our shepherd. That's our savior. There is none other. Jesus, the servant, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Brothers and sisters, fall, let's fall on our faces before this obedient, suffering, tested, vindicated, and as we will see, triumphant, victorious servant. Let's pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for your word, which indeed is a window through which we can see you reveal yourself to your people but it's also a mirror into which we look and we see ourselves. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to open or continue to open our ears to listen, to obey the voice of your servant, Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus indeed came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, enable us to humble ourselves to the point that we can be first served by this servant. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.